Welcome to Counter Stories, programmed by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at the Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Don Newbanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians. We are now at uh, the start of what we have done now for a couple of years, which is doing a legislative wrap-up. And with that in mind, we have some very talented uh, guests today who I'm going to invite to introduce themselves. They are both from Fresh Energy. I'm Brenda Caselius, and I am the new executive director at Fresh Energy, and I'm so excited to be with you here today. Thank you all for having us. My name is Anjali Bain. She, her pronouns. I'm the lead director of energy access and equity at Fresh Energy. That's awesome. We're so excited to have you both for many reasons, not the least of which we want to know more about Fresh Energy, what your mission is, the work that you do. And then we're going to get right into some substance in terms of some new legislation that we're all excited about. So let's start with your mission, uh, Brenda. Let's Talk to us about what Fresh Energy is about. And of course, you're no stranger to us. Uh, you have been an incredible leader in community, uh, most recently with, with the school system, of course. But I'm going to turn it over to you that, to really have us understand uh, not only your role here, but uh, your past leadership experience and what excites you about the role that you are leading now at Fresh Energy. Well, thank you, Luce. Um, It's so great to be with you here today. And as you stated, I was commissioner of education for eight years under Governor Mark Dayton and uh, had a, a deep expertise in policymaking and also in um, helping students be their very best and to seek out their greatest potential. Most recently served as the uh, Boston School Superintendent um, and served through the pandemic, came back home to the state that I love and had this amazing opportunity to join this team here at Fresh Energy working on climate. Um, And what brought me here really was the fact that our youth, when I spoke with them, would talk about their sadness around climate change. They would talk about their decision-making around climate change. And um, then I did some research on that and found that about 57% of youth express deep sadness and anxiety around climate change. And, you know, I've always made it my life's purpose to make a difference for children. And I think that, yes, I could work on and continue to work on giving them a great education and an equitable education, um, but they also need a a planet in which to thrive in. And I was uh, blessed to be able to join a team of amazing professionals, about 35 Um, incredible scientists, physicists, (laughs) physicians, uh, engineers, transportation specialists, um, and just brilliant, passionate people around this topic at a time at which their leader, Michael Noble, who founded the organization 30 years ago, who is amazing in his own right, um, and 
was just deciding to retire. And so I had the opportunity to join. A lot was going on in the legislature at the time. Uh, We had a $17 billion surplus. There were a lot of uh, action. We had a trifecta with the Democratic control, both in the governor's uh, office as well as the legislature in both houses with a narrow majority in the Senate, um, making things um, really possible to make some big change. And so there was uh, some major legislation and over a billion dollars funneled into uh, clean energy policies and um, rebates and tax incentives that will match what was just passed federally in the Infrastructure um, Inflation Reduction Act and also um, a really wonderful initiative led by Biden called Justice 40 that Angeli and I will uh, discuss later. So lots going on at a time of great change and great need, as I was discussing prior to us getting on. You know, this has been one of the hottest summers uh, ever uh, in our nation and across the globe and very concerning um, uh, temperatures, very concerning, um, you know, ocean temperatures and uh, weather events happening that, um, you know, are impacting all of our lives. And so I can't think of a more worthy and important topic to be working on um, right about now uh, to Minnesotans. I think sometimes when I try to talk to people who don't believe in climate change, they look at the summer and then they look at the very cold winter that we had. We just had a very, our last winter was also very cold, a lot of snow and the um, almanac, the thing, farmer's almanac just came out saying we're going to have a very cold, snowy winter again. And then people just go, well, that's not really global warming because it's supposed to be hot during the summer. And now we know it's going to be really cold during the winters again. Do you guys hear that a lot? And like, what do you say to that? So we do hear that a lot. And Anjali probably can speak to it a little bit better than what I can. But what I know is that there were records that were broken this year and multiple records were broken. I think the most recent one was in Arizona, where their average temperature was 112 degrees. We heard about the currents within the ocean potentially coming to an abrupt stop in 2025, that is alarming. It's alarming to think that the ocean temperatures that are outside of Miami are hot tub temperatures. That has never existed in my lifetime or ever before. And when you put all of it together, I find it extremely hard to deny that this year, 2023, might be something we look back in hindsight and go, it was a tipping point. Um, yeah, I think Brenda hit it on the nail of, of the real real results we're seeing with climate change sooner than, honestly, our scientists have modeled it. So this, the science is getting better and better modeling these impacts uh, more accurately. To the question about the, our cold winters, we do hear that a lot. And the, one of the reasons why we use the term climate change versus an earlier term that folks might be aware of, which is global warming, is climate change really encompasses the changes that are happening in both in all seasons. So, you know, we're getting hotter summers, but we're actually getting rapidly warming winters. And I I know it doesn't feel like that when we have snow from November to April, but if folks noticed, our winter was also warmer than average. And in a place like Minnesota, um, sort of maybe not intuitively known, but a place like Minnesota is actually warming quicker than other parts of the U.S. 
And within our seasons, our winter is warming faster than our summer. So it is, you know, we're not necessarily going to get rid of winters right away, but our winters are generally going to be getting milder than they had been. And by that standard, Minnesota standard, it means less negative 40-degree wind chill days and maybe only a handful of negative 20-degree days. So still cold, but it is actually changing, and all that has impacts on our infrastructure and our ecosystem as well. And Angelia, as we have you speaking, tell us more about your role with within uh, Fresh Energy. Sure. So Fresh Energy is a clean energy policy advocacy group. And by that, I mean that we are trying to convince decision makers, mostly at the state legislature and in regu- regulatory arenas, so the Public Utilities Commission or state agencies, trying to make those decision, decision makers take actions that advance clean energy. By clean energy, we mean everything from renewable energy, so solar and wind, to electric vehicles, like personal vehicles or electric buses, to building electrification and also energy efficiency. So all that encompasses our work. Um, And we operate in the state legislature and in these regulatory arenas because those are kind of our bread and butter. We know how to operate within these venues of the powers and we're, we're pretty good at it. My role as a lead of energy accident equity is a really fun role in that I get to, well, I have colleagues who are really thinking about how do we decarbonize the entire sector, whether that's the building sector or the transportation sector or the industry or agricultural sector. The energy access and equity team, my team, we get to really hone in on the human part of that. So it's really, okay, when we're making this change to a clean energy economy, how are we actually making sure that everyone is benefiting from it? And specifically, how do we make sure that those most harmed by climate change, by air pollution, by existing inequities in a system, which tends to be communities of color, what we call under-resourced communities, or those with lower incomes or lower wealth, and those living outside of the Twin Cities, how do we make sure all those groups and any other underserved group from our current economy or energy system, that they are not only participating and included in this clean energy economy, but are benefiting in a way that we have not yet seen in our society. So really, how are we trying to transform systems of inequity so that they're more equitable as we're also transitioning to a clean energy future as well? And although we do a lot of work on policy, um, we really are also focused on engagement and partnering and building coalitions and building movements to get the policy passed. And that means, you know, on Anjali's team around equity and access of making sure that reach is really broad and deep within the communities. And so we have um, team members who are often within the community, speaking with people on the ground. Um, We have someone right now up in Crookston talking um, about opportunities there to support um, some housing development that's going on up there and providing some assistance there. So although we don't directly do technical assistance, we do do it uh, kind of indirectly. And we're going to be entering into strategic planning this coming year. And I think that's important because because historically we haven't done that, but because so much legislation got passed and there was so much funding that's coming to Minnesota and Minnesota put in the hopper as well, there's opportunity for us to really think about the implementation of these activities and these policies so that we can be supportive and play a supportive role in that. 
thank you for Brenda for uplifting how we do our work. We it is very much in partnership. You know, Fresh Energy never accomplishes anything alone. We have coalitions we are leading and supporting. Um, collaborative, I think, another part of our role as a as an organization with power and influence in these venues of power is to really figure out how do we reach outside of it and make space for other groups to come in to have their voices be heard and actually have influence. We sort of think about it in the framework of equity and process. So again, building that inclusive way for others to enter these areas of advocacy and have their voices and opinions heard and influence the outcomes. And then equitable outcomes, which is actually what comes out of these decisions and are they designed in a way to, again, benefit all Minnesotans, particularly those underserved by our our energy um, and economic systems. We are, uh, then let's take a look at the legislation that just passed. It's uh, 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040. So if you can approach it from a high-level understanding of, of what that means, and I also know that there's a segment of there of that uh, law specifically that speaks to environmental justice areas. That Anjali, I think that speaks to some of the points you were you were making as well. So why don't we start first with having uh, all of us understand what that law is and its impact on us as a community, generally speaking, and then we can dive in more closely with any questions from the rest of the crew. Because uh, I know uh, my crew members have plenty of questions to ask uh, of you both. Uh, and then we also want to hear more about the environmental uh, justice areas. Uh, justice 40 is one of the most exciting uh, pieces that that I feel about it because I've led for equity my entire career. And knowing that these resources are geared toward those who most need them is really heartening that that was part of these agreements and that it's not only just in Minnesota, but also on the federal side as well. And so there is such great opportunity and trying to get this information to our communities is what we're really going to be focused on and how to get it where they understand and they have agency and being able to use this funding to to better their homes and to better their lives. So I'll turn it back over to, to Anjali to give more details about how we get those resources to those who need them the most. Yeah, thank you, Brendan. And uh, Brenda, just for folks listening in, um, in case you haven't heard the term Justice 40, it refers to an initiative of the White House that was established by an executive order that President Biden signed within months of uh, taking office. And it really directs federal investments um, across a large swath of agencies, but particularly climate and clean energy infrastructures, so that those investments and those benefits are flowing to what the federal term is called disadvantaged communities. And it's really communities that have been underserved by current systems and overburdened by pollution. The federal government has released a mapping tool to really help define where those communities are geographically in the U.S. Um, and it's really, as Brenda said, something we're thinking about when we're thinking about where we want to influence federal funding and state funding, because the principle itself, as Brenda mentioned, is really core to what Fresh Energy supports in terms of making sure these benefits are reaching and, and including all these communities. Um, so 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040 um, bill. <laughs> is a huge, huge deal for fresh energy. It is um, something we've been supporting and working on for quite a while. But again, as with most of the legislation we'll hopefully touch upon today, a result of many partners and many years of advocacy, in particular the 100% campaign, was really tasked with leading on this and, and 
expanding the coalition so it includes those outside of clean energy space. So major kudos to 100% campaign for running a great, great campaign around this. Uh, this law really asked electric utilities to go a bit faster than what many of the utilities were already planning to do and asked them by 2040, make sure that 100% of your electricity in the state is from carbon-free resources. The law also goes into some specifics on the proportion of that electricity that needs to be from renewable energy versus other sources that might be considered carbon-free, such as nuclear energy, but not necessarily renewable. Um, and it sets some initial benchmarks and helps set a regulatory process to make sure the utilities are actually getting on track to this goal and uh, meeting the requirements. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. The reason why it's so exciting is because to reach our clean energy and climate goals, which generally the science says we have to be carbon neutral or carbon emission neutral by 2050, that relies on an electricity system that is as clean as possible sooner than that goal. So we were really excited for Minnesota to join a bunch of other states, I think about 17 other states who have already passed similar laws. So for us to join and make sure our electricity was cleaning up faster than that overall goal, because the rest of our work and our task at hand is really to make sure then how are we electrifying transportation, how are we electrifying buildings, how are we electrifying as much as possible industry and agriculture so that that is using the most efficient source of energy and the energy being used to power those is coming from the cleanest energy. So that's why it was such a huge deal. We were really, really excited to have it passed after many years of advocacy. And there are things in, in this legislative session, uh, policies and laws that were built that are process laws around regulation and around siting and building codes, et cetera, to kind of um, incentivize or promote um, clean energy. And then there are really specific projects that were uh, funded like rebates for cars and bikes and rebates for heat pumps and the um, initiation of a Minnesota Climate Innovation Finance Authority for something that's called a green bank for lending um, and giving funding to um, folks who maybe can't fully afford um, to replace a heat pump or to replace an electric panel. There is so much in this. Um, and I hope that one thing we can do is provide you a summary of some of these um changes that are about to come so that it's easy for our our Minnesotans um, colleagues and, and friends and communities to get this information. I know the Department of Commerce is also working on um, getting this information out. They just, I think a day or so ago, released their website with some information that they'll continue to update as they continue to just kind of ramp up and, and get all of these programs up. I think I was talking to Assistant Commissioner Pete Wyckoff, who said that he had to expand or initiate 31 programs um, based on this, this legislative session. So there is a lot to do. Yeah, I think um, Brenda's excitement is wonderful and it's, it's rightly placed because as much as we started with 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040 law, that actually passed in early February, which allowed the climate and clean energy movement in Minnesota to then go ahead and focus on a large number of other policies that end up passing, which you know we're, I, we would love to get more into um, once, we, once we finish diving into 100% carbon-free electricity by 2040 law. 
but yeah, lots, lots of things to celebrate and um, be excited for. So I, I got to smile real big because as usually happens on Powder Stories, when we have brilliant people come on, I get folks who were principal in my own journey. Uh, so, so I think it was Castilius who was my principal and my boss at EMID for a while and at Minneapolis goes oh. for a while and all those things. So, hey. Um, <laughs> hey, good to see you. <laughs> you too. Um, so, um, one of the things, and, and Anjali, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this because you, you've got a background in solar energy. And and one of the things that keeps coming up when, um, when as a so we 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 have brought some of the some of the um, some of the findings and some of the work from this into our conversation with the regional um, kind of University of Minnesota Extension um, work that's happening in our area. Um, and one of those is is looking at some innovations, and we actually have down the street uh, a home, an affordable house that was built in the vein of um, Via del Sol, I think it was. That um, we have an article out about that was in 2019 that built itself to be carbon neutral, but in a way that you know, the folks who are living there are going to be folks from our community. And there's a disconnect that was happening when we were trying to bring this conversation to the church body, because it, it seemed like this whole conversation around um, being carbon neutral and, 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 and clean energy and things like that is something for folks to worry about and don't have to worry about putting food on the table. Um, you know, like that occupies all those conversations. And so it was like, a, it seemed like a heavy lick um, to to try to get to try to say no no this affects you too like there's there's expectations we can have there's pressure we can put on developers for affordable housing um, to take advantage of this and that was a mandate <laughs> that we have to 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 be on track for so I'm I'm curious what some of your tactics have been to try to kind of bridge this gap for folks who don't see themselves as part of this conversation because. You know, it hasn't been historically or they, they're like, I'm I'm worried about just keeping a job. You know, what has been that conversation for you all? Yeah, that is a great point. And it is something that, you know, hasn't been solved, but it's constantly something we talk about and are trying to be better and figure out ways to broach those conversations. And and one of the ways we've been doing it at Fresh Energy and actually kind of goes towards uh, the work of one of the folks on the energy access and equity team, Mario Ojeda. She leads our housing and energy work. Um, and one of the things that is exciting about the energy access and equity team is we get to start looking at those intersections with things like affordable housing. And the question for us is how do we make it as easy as possible for the individual to benefit from this without having to do all those steps themselves to find, figure out financing, to become an energy efficiency and electrification expert? Like though, That is never going to work. Um, regardless of the person probably, but especially, like you said, when there's so many other priorities. So the primary ways we've been thinking about it so far is working with other advocacy groups who may focus on uh, housing or even like immigration and thinking about where are the points of commonalities with your mission, our mission, and how can we find connection and how can we be a group that brings the clean energy expertise and helps you figure out how that applies to your space. Because I think you know, Brenda sort of mentioned this in her introduction, the great thing about climate and clean energy, it actually touches every part of our life. There is nothing that can't, that isn't going to be involved in this transition. So when we talk about housing, it's really how do we make sure that current housing and new housing is built in a way that's efficient, healthy, and affordable. 
Um, that's really the lens that our team brings to our work. And it's, again, through reaching with organizations that have scoops or in those spaces. It's also working with utilities. We do a lot of work with utilities and their energy efficiency planning to make sure that the programs they're designing for what we call under-resourced customers, that they're done in a way that eases interaction and participation in the program and really makes it, again, as easy as possible from the customer perspective to plug in and have support and get funding and also technical assistance to do this work. Um, there's a whole other layer of this conversation around renters and multifamily housing properties that might be benefiting from a, a, a deeper dive discussion, but it's something we think about in terms of how do we do outreach to other complementary groups. You know, we work with the Public Utilities Commission. Um, we work with PCA. We work with Commerce. Commerce but And we work with our coalitions. And one thing we do behind the scenes is, is accountability and protections of rates and the the rate pay, the rate pay, what's it, payer rates? What's it called, Anjali? Um, yeah, rate payer. And just making sure that the, you know, those who, who are most in need are not having to pay the highest rates, you know? And I think, you know, that, that accountability eye that Fresh Energy staff has when they work with um, the Public Utilities Commission and work with Excel Energy and others around what those rates are going to be is really important work um, to keep the costs down for families. Very true. And I also want to shout out our partners, Citizen Utilities Board, who do an amazing job also around uh, consumer protection. And they've just been, they're a small and mighty crew <laughs> who turn up in these spaces as well. So like... Um... When my husband and I moved into our house, uh, we had a big tree in our backyard that fell almost like immediately when we moved in. And so our yard just seems like a, and our garage and the back of our house seems like perfect place for solar panels, right? And it's something that we have discussed every year, but it seems so expensive. And, you know, everybody's saying there are rebates, there's this, there's that. And then I'm bombarded with ads on social media that are like, oh, there are rebates for you that leads me to some third party company that's trying. And so I get confused. And, you know, I'm like, okay, so what's real? Where are the real rebates? How do I even navigate this? I know nothing about solar power, you know? And so I'm very confused about how I can even do it in my everyday life. And so is that something Fresh Energy helps with? Like, how do people like us figure out how to do it in our lives. I'm going to jump on that because um, I didn't, I've never even heard of a heat pump. Me too. So, I mean, just to throw it out, you know, so just, you know, listening to this conversation, you guys use the term heat pump. I'm thinking, what the hell is a heat pump? So while everyone was talking, I had to look it up. I never heard of a heat pump. So there's much about this kind of stuff that and I consider myself, yeah, you know, I'm think I'm kind of pretty well informed, and I've never heard of a heat pump, and I'm a homeowner, right? And I'm a member of the Malax Band, and so there are many things about this that that uh, people just are totally unaware of. And the bottom line is, am I going to see an increase in my monthly electric bill? <laughs> which is already out of hand, right? So, I mean, that for me, that's how we have to break it down so that and, we and understand. I, yeah. 
And I think that the people who were uh, uh, the people who were against this bill, I think that's where they got some sort of advantage because some of the statements that were coming out was that this was jeopardizing Minnesota's economic future, and statements like that for folks of us like us, like we we we're pretty well informed, right? We're smart people, but we still can't wrap our heads around some of these things. And when your legislator comes out and says this is going to jeopardize your family's future and the economics, you know, you start to freak out and you start to think, okay, maybe this isn't good for for our state. And so that's where this confusion lies that kind of gets some of us, I think. That's a really good point that both of you make. And that is something that Fresh Energy does do is we do webinars. We do um, education with the community. We make sure that we partner with our coalition, like our certs, um, which are um, uh, working uh, their citizen boards, basically in regional um, actors who work within Minnesota to on clean energy. And um, we're partnering all the time to try to get the information out. We're also partnering with commerce to get the information out and make it really simple and easy. And, you know, I, I honestly also didn't know what a heat pump was. Um, I had heard of them, but I, I didn't really know how it worked, you know. And now as the executive director of Fresh Energy, I'm finding out all kinds of things. Like we haven't even talked about transmission and distributive lines and um, regulators who are sitting there regulating the energy on those transmission lines. And it's called the grid. And like, what is that? I mean, some of this stuff is just seems so complex and hard to understand that people will just shut it off. So we are working on some simple communication pieces. I was just meeting with our communications director today um, on some really cool interactive um, uh, web uh, applications so that it'll be easy and also paper applications. Like I could see us going to church, Reverend. And doing some small um, conversations with folks and, and giving them the information about what is this bringing bringing a heat pump, you know, or bringing a, a clothes dryer that's a heat pump clothes driver dryer. I've never heard of that before, you know. I mean, there's all kinds an induction stove, you know, and let people actually use them. Work with community education and get people cooking on them so that they know that, you know, they can use these things and actually replace their gas stove if they want. There's just so many things to learn about how you can change your behavior and contribute to something good for all of us. It's, yeah, it's I- precisely that practical piece that um, stood out to me as I was, as, you know, reading through some of that some of that work. Because those are the things that get our fo- get the folks in our community to perk up, right? Um, just yeah. alone, what you said, and I, yes, heat pump is, is a little bit don't work because it also cools, like it, it works for air conditioning and for heating as well. But but the idea that I can take that and use that in this practical way marries with a giving garden, right? So I'm I'm also thinking as I hear you talk that um, it may not. Marshalling around an energy conversation can be a heavy lift in the marketing space, but I already have folks at the table for the 1,500 to 2,000 pounds of food that comes out of this community garden that it is in service. Now, if I marry that with how we, how do we cook and how do we do these things, especially in an area where things fail, things fail in, in Duluth when that snow hits, not so much the cold, but the, but the snow itself, 
the sheer weight of that, right? And to have, to be able to marry this conversation with other ways it helps you kind of plug in, unintended, um, to conversations from a different way. Yeah, I think everything you all have said is exactly right. Um, we we actually do think about this a lot in terms of who Brenda mentioned our general education. We have a lot of explainers on our website as well. We actually have a heat pump. What is a heat pump blog post? I had to read it also before this to remind myself. You're right. It's a heating and cooling device. The heat pump refers to pumping heat inside or outside of your home rather than like the heating only. Um, so we do a lot of that. But then especially with so much federal funding coming in, you know, we've most been talking about a state law, but there's so much federal funding coming in for heat pumps or electric vehicles or energy efficiency and on top of the state funding that passed the session. So our, our question to people like state agencies, to people like utilities, to energy efficiency implementers, the people who have the point of contact with customers is really, how are you aligning your message on all of these things so that there's a one-stop shop for people to come and learn and learn not only about the technology, but also figure out how to participate in that as well. So that's been like a key through line of many advocates, uh, advocacy, honestly. You know, a lot of us recognize it's a challenge and we really want a central resource. Brenda mentioned that Department of Commerce had already had launched in the last couple of days their landing page for these rebates for both federal and state programs. I think that'll be a really great place to start uh, showing to people and and kind of being a point source of information. We are working on the utility side to make sure that they are aligning their resources with the state resources because we, what we don't want is just a piecemeal of you can find some things here, you can find some things there, you can find some things there, which even for those of us in the space can get frustrating to try to track down all those different sources. So can we hear you loud and clear? And that's, that's exactly something we're trying to work on. There's an earlier question about kind of the... the opposition message heard around the 100% carbon-free electricity bill. That that was the main kind of talking point. And the thing with that is climate change in general is causing a lot of costs to come up. I think when you hear a message like that, it's it's a mis, it's like misleading. It's, a, it's misleading in, in many ways. But the primary way is that if we don't make this change, climate change, the cost from climate change, whether it's from extreme weather, all the things you mentioned, the grid infrastructure from heavy snow or, you know, thawing, rapid thawing, freezing cycles, um, or our physical infrastructure, all that will cost much more than the cost we need to build up our electric grid in order to be able to have renewable and solar and battery storage be primary ways of getting our energy. So that that is sort of the actual context of thinking about it. Will we will we have to make investments? Will utilities have to make investments to be able to build a grid that can be 100% carbon-free by 2040? Yes, absolutely. Does it have to be the most expensive version? No, that is where we come in as advocates to really figure out, help them. How do you do it in a way that is the most effective use of repair dollars? Um, and, you know, renewable and solar, I would be remiss not to say renewable and solar are cheaper than traditional power-generating sources that we see, for instance, fossil gas, which is our term for natural gas, so fossil gas and coal, like renewable and energy is cheaper. So it's those sort of information. It is easy when you're not in the kind of industry to see it and really get scared. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to kind of trigger that fear instinct to be cautious instead of realizing that we are not to not to <laughs> make everyone anyone feel scared about this part. We are very behind on where we need to go for climate change and clean energy. So laws like this 
are necessary for us to have, be able to have a future where we're not having to do with the, the major class with a rapidly changing climate. Um, but yeah, that, that's a really good point. And it, it brings up that as much as the, we did advocacy and communication, continued advocacy and communication around what these laws actually mean so there's not continued disinformation out there is really important. So I really thank you all for inviting us on this podcast as a chance to keep clarifying the message and, and share what's what is really happening with these things. Yeah, and also providing supporting materials too for people to click on um, so that they can get an, uh, information. They can also go to our website and get information, go to the Department of Commerce's website for more federal and national uh, scan of opportunities. You can click on Rewiring America. They have a wonderful calculator there that shares, you know, kind of what you might be eligible for um, in terms of rebates or tax incentives. These will be available. Uh, like the rebates are available until they're gone, but the tax incentives, I believe, Angelique, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, are available for the next 10 years. And she's got to give me a thumbs up. That's good. Um, and so I think, you know, getting informed, asking when you have questions. The one great thing about the uh, Rewiring America website is that there's a place once you go to this calculator to find out what you're eligible for. But then they have a button that says make a plan. And then that helps you to make a plan. And then they also have a, a, a phone number that you can call and ask questions for as well and get some get some support. So there's many different ways to get uh, information, many different ways to get support. Um, and we're here to help uh, make it less confusing and to make it more accessible to more people that need it. Brenda, um, your past uh, experience as an educator is coming through beautifully and really encouraging our, our listeners to empower themselves by learning from uh, not only Fresh Energy, but all the other resources that you you mentioned, Rewiring America and so forth, right? It, it's, it's awesome to have you in that role. You know, another part of the, the law that I think would be of, uh, of interest to our audience is the creation of new clean energy jobs, uh, and hoping that we can learn some more about that. What does that entail? How do our listeners begin to be aware of that, those opportunities, and plug into that? From my education background, and as you said, Luz, this is like one piece that I'm really excited about. Fresh Energy currently doesn't do a lot around workforce, but I think that this is a tremendous opportunity and we're going to be, our, you know, we just had a board retreat and the, we, there's several of the board members were talking about workforce because instead of the fear around the economy kind of, you know, not um, doing well with with these laws, it's actually going to thrive if we do it right, because there are going to be jobs, jobs and jobs. And so we've got to get to our K-12 sector and make sure that our young people know about these jobs. We're going to need carpenters, electricians. There are some estimates we'll need a million electricians across the nation in the next 10 years because there's so many retiring. We're going to need crane operators. We're going to need excavators, pipe fitters, truckers, um, physicists, physicians, engineers, you name it. There, you know, everyone from a credential um, to high school diploma to a four-year master's doctorate PhD level. It is going to be all hands on deck. 
And so aligning our K-12 system and our higher education system, working with labor will really help us to drive this clean energy transition and make sure that we have the people to fill these jobs. And these are really good paying jobs. And so people have to have the information about it so that they can get the training and technical expertise in order to fill these positions. Well, I wanted to bring up one thing and that was, that was transportation. So one thing that, uh, really comes to my head is like the Twin Cities is not a very walkable, you know, we're not very walkable cities. And what something that Anthony had also mentioned before was folks are just like, like, I don't have, I don't have time to, you know, I don't have brain space for this because I am trying to, you know, get to work, get my kids to school, you know, do this, do that. Um, so I need a car. I need a car to get me from A to B because I can't wait. You know, I can't walk. 10 blocks with my toddler and my laptop and my book bag and everything, um, hop on the bus for an hour before I can, you know, three transfers later, I finally get to where I'm supposed to go. Um, So how does this bill, how does this effort affect um, how we look at public transportation? Well, this is Anjali's expertise. And so I'm definitely going to turn this over to her, but I'm going to first talk about two things that, or three things that I'm really excited about that I'm sure she'll elaborate on. The first is that, you know, in schools in K-12, there's money for EV buses in the transportation um, bucket of of initiatives and, and laws that were passed and funding that was put toward this. There's also a $2.9 million um, safe routes to schools, which gets kids off of the bus and helps pay for supervision and routing of children to get to school safely by walking. And that's really exciting um, because that's less diesel buses on the road. We have 14,000 buses on the road right now, school buses that are diesel buses. I think that um, Metro Transit now is going to get a 0.75 tax increase, and it mostly is going to Met Council, I think, um, who is going to be working with Metro Transit on um, on bus routing and and making it more accessible, EV buses, et cetera. But I'll let Anjali um, explain a little bit more about what's happening in transportation side. Yeah, so... um, And bikes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, there are. There are um, in this session we got rebates passed at the state level for personal electric vehicles, uh, used electric vehicles, electric bikes, electric school buses, and I believe electric transit buses. It really actually leverages and complements federal funding for most of those things. There's actually no federal funding for electric bikes yet, but some Minnesota sort of stepped in to fill in that that hole. There is for cars, though. Yes, yes. For um, cars are at the at the federal and state level. So, yeah, I actually think Brenda hit on it exactly that one of the big climate wins after the 100% carbon-free electricity law is actually getting that 0.75 sale tax in the seven-county metro area because that is going to fund transit. So transit funding, it's not something I think folks outside of the clean, clean energy space think of as being pertinent to clean energy and climate conversation. But I think you hit the nail in the head right on when we think about tackling the rest of our emissions and climate pollution. It's really figuring out how do we transform systems of how we get around and how we move our goods as well. So having a dedicated source of funding for a transit system is a first step 
to making sure there's alternatives to those um, car car trips. And, you know, it's important from a climate perspective. It's also important from an access equity perspective. We live in Minnesota thinking that everyone can drive a car, everyone has access to a car. We know that's not true. There's actually quite a high percentage for such a car-dependent society where people don't either can't drive or don't have access to a car. So having this dedicated funding source is really important. Having other funding sources for things like electric transit buses would make sure that those transit investments are also going towards solutions that will be less polluting and more efficient. And there's also a need to recognize that there is, you know, transit will will cover a certain amount of folks, transportation, especially in the metro area, but that for areas outside of the metro where transit maybe doesn't make as much sense, we have to be supporting those electric vehicle purchases, whether it's a purchase by a single household or something like an electric vehicle car share. I would, I'm on the Our Car board in the Twin Cities, but it's a nonprofit car sharing. Um, so I'm going to put that hat on quickly. Nonprofit car sharing organization that is actually electrifying its fleet and is an example in the U.S. of how do you think about access to clean transportation beyond needing to purchase a vehicle. It has electric vehicles across the Twin Cities right now. It's the EV program, EVIE. It is partnering with the U.S. Department of Energy to get funding for that program. It partners with Excel Energy to install EV charging around the Twin Cities for its vehicles and actually everyone to charge that, which is awesome. And it's really helping just make visible electric vehicles and make it more of an idea that seems real to more folks. I think, Donald, to your point, it's, you know, anyone can use these EVs. So it's a way just to get a taste of what it's like to use an EV. Um, and they have actually multiple, you know, payment rates so that if you do identify as un- under-resourced, you actually can get a cheaper plan so that your use of that vehicle is still on the cheaper side and um, still affordable for you as well. So transportation is a very interesting, it's very complicated um, because we have so much built infrastructure, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing more to really lay the foundation to change as we, as a metro area particularly, is built. Because we also believe that there should be investments in active transportation and sidewalks and pedestrian safety, just so people are able to walk around um, and be able to get to places without needing to hop in the car or feel like this, you know, they have to hop in the car because they don't feel safe enough biking or walking. Those those are issues we, you know, want to deal with as well. Or our partners, for instance, um, Move Minnesota, Sierra Club, really work on, on this side of things. There's a coalition called Transportation Board that also worked really hard on getting this transit funding. So major kudos to them for such a huge, huge win on the transit side. Minneapolis just passed their climate plan as well. Um, and so excited to see what's going to come out of that. I know they've already been working on bike lanes um, throughout the city to make it more accessible and safe for for riders. Um, and so that's exciting. It'll be exciting to see what happens with the school, uh, safe schools um, funding and our safe routes to school funding. The e-share bike um, is popular here on the east side of St. Paul. And a lot of people have been really pushing it as well. Um, a share ride or um, a ride share program with, with EV cars. One thing, as we talk about like funding going to you know transportation and making it easier, I think some things that, I mean, I guess it's on my mind right now is like how and where those um, things happen. So it's on my mind because one of our stations that are part is a part of Ampers, um, KMOJ, may lose their building due to eminent domain for the blue line. 
right? So now we're talking again about neighborhoods being um, disruptive, being separated from, you know, so we have, we're talking equity in, in climate, right? We're talking, and then we're talking equity in transportation. And so like getting the funding for it doesn't just end there. Like this equity mission has to continue beyond everything that you guys do at your organization and needs to move on to the next organization and just like hope that that mentality and that goal continues so that, you know, we don't get lose all of these historic places and and monuments within um, our area that we live in. Right. And sometimes there is a really hard struggle between access to the community and some of our historic traditional buildings and um, community spaces that, you know, are, are not are, are um, complicating the plans for where that transit ought to be sited and where it needs to go. Yeah. One, uh, you know, we, we don't, we're not involved in the sort of the blue line specifically, but we know we have a partner organization called the Alliance, which is awesome. And they have a coalition around that. So I know they've been thinking a lot to your question about this broader question of how do we build these things with equity in mind. They actually, I think they mm-hmm. have a series called Equitable Development. Um, so the Alliance, really great organization. They have some wonderful resources on their website. And I think they'd be a wonderful guest if you ever, if you haven't had them on to talk more about some of those issues you brought up, because those are really important issues. And this is really why the equity work that Anjali and her team does, and that really all Fresh Energy does, um, is so important. And it's so important for us to be able to partner with other organizations with a justice mindset so that we can make sure that that is front of mind and not an afterthought, and that we're bringing communities with us and along with us and leading from their um, their priorities uh, within their communities. That's a perfect uh, entree into the next question. This law has an act, uh, an aspect and. Uh, that refers to the environmental justice areas. And from my understanding, the Public Utilities Commission, the PUC, needs to consider the economic and environmental impact for BIPOC communities, including Indian country. So Anjali, can you help us understand more about that and those concerns uh, and the impact that we hope to see different than what you know we've seen historically as they've destroyed our, our, our communities um, desperately so? This session, there was, it was probably one of the clearer sessions in which environmental justice priorities were at the forefront, or at least part of the conversations of every, as we have this opportunity, how are we actually making sure these opportunities are including and supporting the priorities of environmental justice groups? In particular, there is a group called the Minnesota Environmental Justice Table based in the Twin Cities uh, that are made up of primarily leaders of color in environmental justice issues also Cabal, which takes environmental justice from um, a Latino perspective, among many other, you know, groups on the north side of Minneapolis as well, have been very much advocates for thinking about environmental justice and really bringing that into the climate clean energy conversation. So this session, there's a couple of things that passed that were focusing specifically, I think, to your point, uh, Luz, on, on the history and legacy of pollution for communities of color and tribal nations from past decisions made around how do we power our society. And in particular, there is an act called the Frontlines Communities Protection Act, 
which was really pulled together again by that Minnesota Environmental Justice Table and, and led by Gobal to put together a policy in which when a when a state agency, the pollution control agency, when it issued air, air permits for what's called point source pollution, so like a industrial facility or manufacturing facility, for it to consider the cumulative impacts of air pollution. And by that, I mean, traditionally, air permitting happens in a way that looks at the single source of pollution and thinks about, okay, so it's emitting this much tons of pollution. It's under our guidelines. It's okay. What that permitting process doesn't do is really look at, but this neighborhood that's getting cited in, it already has a couple of pollution sources or it has a highway through it. So you're not really just putting this amount of pollution into an open, clean air space. It's really adding to the existing air quality to the area. But there wasn't a process in our old permit, air permitting system to really, un, to really understand that layering of pollution in certain communities. So uh, the Frontlines Communities Protection Act put forth a framework, a, a kind of a process to start a rulemaking so that the pollution control agency would actually have r- rules in place for the air permits where it was considering those overall impacts communities rather than just a single point source. And this was a priority brought to us, again, by those environmental justice advocates. A lot of organizations supported it, but it was it was very much um, environmental justice groups that led and got that over the finish line. And it was, you know, it's, I, I've heard it's one of the nation-leading versions of the legislation out there, which is really, really exciting. Um, it only applies to the metro areas, I understand it, but there's an opt-in opportunity, or metro area, Duluth, Rochester. And then tribal nations have an um, option to opt-in or opt-out for the process. So, you know, really making sure it's based on, on their desires rather than having it be a blanket. Um, so that is, I would say that is is probably... The, the landmark piece of legislation that really culminated around the priorities and really wanted to recognize some of those past decision makings that harmed those communities in particular. Thank you both so much for your incredible insight. Uh, we have learned so much, but there's that much more to learn, it sounds like. You seem like you covered just a little bit of it. Um, and we'll maybe have you back again in the near future to help us understand even deeper um, into the law, but also the field, quite honestly. Um, There's so much here that is typically uh, covered by mainstream uh, news that doesn't really unpack all the acronyms and the fundamental understandings. Uh, So it is definitely a learning curve for for many of us as we sit and, and listen to you both. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, thank you for your incredible work in our community, making sure that equity is always uh, at the forefront. Uh, we appreciate Fresh Energy for all that you do. Uh, we'll encourage our listeners to jump on your website as well as the other websites uh, that have been mentioned. Um, and with this, uh, we'll, we'll close it off. Uh, this has been Counter Stories, programmed by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments or opinions that I've relayed are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner at the Dendros Group and Pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers and Counter Stories producer. I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. 
And Brenda and, and Angeli, you can go ahead and sign up. I'm Brenda Caselius, Executive Director of Fresh Energy, and just very grateful for this conversation and look forward to continuing it uh, in the days and months to come. And I'm Anjali Baines, Lead Director of Energy Excellence and Equity at Fresh Energy, and uh, thank you so much for the conversation today. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For a full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>